What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As a captain in the F-22, I had the opportunity to drop the first bomb off of an F-22. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Today, we have myself, obviously, and we've got Bender here sitting in his car, uh, which is not so unusual. Uh, But what is unusual is we have our first retired one-star general, uh, John Dragon Teichert, and uh, he was a uh, F-15 pilot, went to test pilot school, flew the F-22, was at test for, uh, I think, a few years, did 28 years in the active duty Air Force, and it sounds like he finished that up with with just over a year-long deployment. Uh, So we're going to talk about all those things. He has uh, spent time, not surprisingly, in uh, D.C. and all around the world. Uh, So Dragon, sir, thank you very much for being here. Tell us about yourself. It's not a trap. Yeah. No, absolutely. Vader, Bender, thanks for having me. You guys put together a great product on Kodiak Shack, and I'm honored to be here. Uh, I did serve in the Air Force for 28 years. I loved every minute of it, and I got to be a fighter pilot. I got to be a test pilot. I got to be a foreign area officer, and I got to be a leader, and uh, I really just had a blast all along the way. Uh, I was an F-15E and an F-22 guy, uh, and like you said, the end of my career was Commander at Andrews, commander at Edwards, a 14-month deployment as the senior defense official and defense attache to Iraq, and then I closed it out as the deputy at Air Force International Affairs. Uh, Retired about two months ago, a wife of 25 years and three awesome kids, and the oldest one is in ROTC, and she might want to be a fighter pilot like her dad. Nice. Love it. uh, So, I mean, now you're traveling around the world. You do 28 years in the active duty Air Force. I mean, how did the military change and change your perspective of just over the years as you spent that time in the military? So I think that the Air Force changed less than I changed. I think I grew up along the way. You guys probably have all experienced that. And I saw some things that I liked and I saw some things that I didn't like. 
But I think as I grew up, and this might be sacrilege to this audience in the show, but I started to shift away from how much predominantly I liked flying to more predominantly I like impacting people as a leader. And I noticed that shift a little bit as a flight commander, but really that shift as a squadron commander. And as I did so, I recognized that I could look up and out a little bit more and recognize not just the great things that my tribe was doing in the Air Force, but to find out all around the corners of the Air Force that these airmen are doing amazing things. And I just think my perspective opened up to a greater appreciation for the great things that are being done by airmen all over a base and all around the world in the Air Force. And I I, uh, I can understand the sentiment of just wanting to light your hair on fire and fly fast jets and hang out with the bros and do all that stuff. So what was it uh, as a squadron commander, as a lieutenant colonel, becoming a colonel, becoming a general, how was your general experience in the Air Force and how did you feel you were able to have impactful experiences for, for the people that worked with you? Yeah, so I think it starts like you guys know, where you're in the trenches and you're flying the line and you really get to go deep into what that element of the Air Force is all about. For me as an operational Strike Eagle pilot and eventually as a line test pilot for the F-22. And then as you develop and as you get the opportunity for more and more responsibility, then you can make a decision whether you want to be somebody or you want to do something. And it's a pretty distinct time in your life where you have to make that decision. And I believe that if you make the right decision, which is to do something with impact, and I believe a leader can have multi-generational impact for the Air Force and support and defend the Constitution of the United States, then you realize the joy that comes with that. And then you pour yourself, hopefully, as a selfless leader into that endeavor to help airmen become the best possible version of themselves. That's awesome. And we were actually talking with uh, Ian uh, that, you know, obviously, and and he was he was saying in his time in the military, 23 years, that he was able to actually spend uh, send a lot of people that worked with him to schools and and other training and opportunities like that. So I assume you got to do something very similar, uh, you know, at a squadron level and then even a wing level. No. And and that idea of the multi-generational impact is so important, because if you grow up the type of leaders and airmen that our nation needs, then when you step out the door like I did two months ago and are sitting on your front porch in your rocking chair talking about the good old days, you know that others are out there carrying a little bit of you with them in the support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And it's that multi-generational impact that I recognized as I saw leaders invest in me and I developed a passion to make sure that I had that opportunity to do so for others. Yeah, we, uh, Bender and I, we grew up together flying the F-16 in uh, Misawa, Japan, and uh, our first weapons officer uh, was, I mean, he was just, he was amazing. He's a, he's a great guy, great weapons officer, and we would always uh, refer to us being like uh, his, his like disciples or his, you know, he sired us as fighter pilots of, he kind of, he made us, he kind of gave us the the tools to be the fighter pilots that we became one day uh, because of his, like you said, that, that generational leadership, which I, I think that's great because we need that, you know, it's a huge organization, but you can have those impactful human interactions. You know, Vader, that really struck me when I sat down at my first wing commanders conference every year, the chief of staff spends two days dedicated 
uh, his uh, wing commanders, active duty and guard and reserve. There's about 250 total wings in the Air Force. I think about 100 active duty and about 150 guard and reserve. And so I sat down in January of 2017. And as you typically do when you show up at a conference, you look around to see who you know. And so I'm sitting there and I recognize that there were seven of us from the same squadron at the same time 20 years prior to that. And I was thinking about why, and it wasn't cronyism or nepotism. It was because we had a squadron commander and a DO and a couple of flight commanders that didn't just care about developing us into good Strike Eagle pilots and whizzos, though they did, but they invested in us for the longer term. And that investment bore fruit 20 years later as we're all now sitting in that same room as wing commanders in the Air Force. That's really cool. And I bet they probably had that that pride that you probably experience when the people you kind of helped shepherd through their careers finally got to, to those ne- next level of leadership. No, and as I reached out to them, you know that they're just beaming with pride because, again, they're long gone from the scene, but their impact remains. Yeah, definitely. So how was, uh, so we've talked about Edwards a few times on the podcast, you know, Mojave Desert, it's where test is done for all fixed wing. Uh, How, what is your perspective of Edwards and kind of give insight into how Edwards handles so many different MDSs or aircraft and having to kind of keep everyone fed, if you will? Yeah, so I was there three different times. I was there as a captain major. I went to test pilot school and then went right out of TPS to fly F-22 test. And then I left for a couple of years of school and then came back as a director of operations and a squadron commander for the F-22 test. And then I left developmental test for seven years and came back then as the one-star wing commander. And each time, like I said earlier, I got a broader perspective of what we did. Uh, I in part tongue-in-cheek, but in part serious, called Edwards the center of the aerospace testing universe. And it's a little bit with pride that I said that, but the truth of the matter is that every major aviation milestone in the last 75 years either was performed at Edwards or had some connection or nexus at Edwards. And it's amazing when you think about fighters, bombers, tankers, transports, uh, UAVs, uh, and a variety of advanced technology all being executed test at the same location under the auspices of that massive organization. It's it's an air show every day, but it's also humbling to think that for each of those platforms, the team there, that uh, group of test professionals that includes a lot of government civilians and then a lot of military as well, are molding and shaping the future of American aerospace capability not just for what the warfighter needs in the here and now, but for a decade or two down the road. And that takes a lot of wisdom and it takes a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of close work with the warfighter to make sure that we're not just testing for test sake, but we're doing so with a very particular purpose. And that is making sure that the best capability gets into the hand of the warfighter uh, today and gets into their hands for the next decade or two. Well, and the, uh, the first time I was actually on the ground uh, to hear a sonic boom was actually at Edwards. I was there for a uh, high AOA for the F-16, and I'm sitting in a, in a brief and, you know, getting talked to about the high AOA course, and I hear 
uh, what sounds like an explosion in the distance. And I kind of look at the test pilot that's briefing me and he's like, oh yeah, sonic boom. And uh, I guess a Raptor was doing some sonic booms over the base. And I was like, this is a pretty cool spot to be, you know? So I assume that was pretty common for you. Yeah, there, there's not a lot of places where, as you know, you can fly supersonic over land. I mean, you can do it, but you're not supposed to, and you'll get in yeah. trouble when you do. Uh, yeah. But there's a ton of airspace where you can do that at Edwards. I remember my first time fairly early on in test pilot school. I was reversing my car, and I heard it, and I thought I hit something. You know, it <laughs> shakes the car a little bit, and it, and it rattles you, and the boom is pretty loud. Uh, but then you just get used to it. But it's fun watching the new people flinch every time they hear one. Yeah, the uh, well, I sp- I did my last active duty assignment at Holloman Air Force Base at the F-16 FTU, and uh, that's another place where they actually do a lot of testing, uh, but can also go supersonic surprisingly low, down to 10,000 feet MSL, which is about 6,000 feet AGL. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, how does how does Edwards, and maybe they don't, but how does Edwards and Holloman, because they both kind of do like uh, DT testing, uh, how do they integrate and work together on that? Yeah, and don't forget that Eglin has a large uh, developmental test footprint as well as an OT footprint as well. And really the responsibility if you're doing test, and this applies to OT or DT, is that you need to manage the life cycle of the test program. And so that includes the planning and the support and the execution and the reporting. And if you do the planning right, then you took take a look at the global assets that you have in the test community and you decide where it would be best based on an allocation of assets and the type of support that you need or ranges that you need to allocate those tests out to the right location to execute. And then you can bring that data together to report. And it's kind of interesting when you think about tests that the execution is the supporting function to the reporting function, that ultimately the end result of test is to develop Uh, the information that you provide in reports, and that can be in deficiency reports or a big test report or an operational tactic or technique or procedure. Uh, But the end result of all of that uh, is the good output of reporting, but it starts in the planning and the planning then can allocate in the best possible way where that execution is accomplished and then bring together the data to report in the right way. And then how are you, I mean, I assume you have, there are your different groups and your different organizations that are doing exactly that, working with the other organizations to, to bring, to coalesce all this data to, to have one presentation or, or, or pass that data up. Yeah, there's actually one particular group within the Big Edward structure that's the tech, test management group. And they okay. used to have one in the OT world there at Eglin. Uh, as well. And it's kind of shifted a little bit over time, but they are the ones that have the experts in program management, not necessarily in technical management, but in management of the program. And that includes schedule and that includes cost or resources uh, and manpower. And so they're the ones that typically manage these programs from beginning to end, uh, ensuring that Uh, best you can, you're integrating with the operational testers if you're a D-tier as well to make sure you're getting the best possible information for the warfighter. The, uh, so maybe, well, what would you say is the most impactful or most uh, exciting, you know, to you test that you either were a part of or oversaw or anything that, that that you, you can talk about in an unclassified environment, I assume. (laughs) 
No, so Vader, I appreciate that. And and uh, anything I say sounds a little bit self-serving, but it really is just indicative of the awesomeness of the team. Way early on in my career, as a test guy, uh, as a captain in the F-22, I had the opportunity to drop the first bomb off of an F-22 in test, not nice. in combat. Uh, and, and I remember that huge test team. And it, it's a little bit like if you see in the movies what goes on in NASA, where there's a big control room. And they all are tracking their individual parameters as you go out and do a test. Uh, but I remember a very full briefing and then what I heard about, which was a full control room for that test. And to see all of those pieces of planning, support, and execution come together to drop the first bomb off of an aircraft and make sure that it separates as it should and it guides as it should is a pretty fantastic opportunity and I'm going to give a quick plug to my director of operation at the time, Colonel Don Dunlop, who at the time it seemed like a lot of the folks who were in the leadership chain at Edwards were fighting over the really good firsts of what happened on the F-22. And she stuck her claim and made sure that the new guy, me, uh, as a guy that just came from the Strike Eagle and had more uh, air-to-ground experience than the rest of the team was able to get in early for that test and then to execute that test. And that's just one of those great examples of the question you asked, the most substantial test program that I ever was a part of, was the result of the selflessness of a leader that gave me that opportunity. And now a decade and a half later or more, I'm talking about it to you. Yeah, and I think that's one of those things where as a leader, you may not understand how impactful something could be or how long lasting that experience can be. But then, you know, now your DO probably knows very well that, uh, well, you know, whether or not they listen to the podcast, but, uh, the, they, you know, I told they her, under- so she's tracking. Okay. Well, perfect. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's great. Well, and it was probably, I mean, I, obviously there was some gravity to it, you know, dropping it from the Raptor, but you probably been ripping a lot of bombs in your experience. So it's just, uh, what, what bomb was it? Can you, uh, specify? Yeah. So it was a thousand pound JDAM. Uh, okay, nice. and the thing that really bothered me about the control room on that test is that I pickle and then by the time the bomb would have hit the target, the control room isn't telling me what just happened because they're celebrating the success <laughs> of the test and they forgot to tell the guy in the air that it was a successful test. And so finally, I keyed the mic and asked them, uh, J-Wad was the name of the test conductor, the guy that I primarily interfaced with on the mic. I said, hey, J-Wad, how did it go? And then when he keyed the mic, there was a bunch of cheering going on in the control room. And so uh, they forgot about me. And I guess I didn't matter at that point because it was already a success. <laughs> Well, that's good. And so uh, we've we've talked a little bit about DT and OT in the podcast before. Uh, but so what are some concerns when you're preparing or you're planning? You have all these, obviously you've done simulations and you have expectations. What are the things that you are really concerned about being the pilot in the seat? Yeah, so there is a long process that goes through to make sure that the test plan is technically adequate. That means that you're going to get the data out of the test that you want. And then there's a separate independent process that goes through a safety review to make sure that you're tracking the likely safety concerns and that you understand the risk that you're accepting. You understand the best way to mitigate that risk. And then somebody at the right level of the chain of command buys off on the residual risk. And so every test is different. And sometimes... It's whether the aircraft 
can withstand a particular point in space uh, and point in the envelope that you're in. Or if you're doing an avionics test, maybe there's concerns about interference. Or if something's releasing off of the jet, then sometimes that doesn't always go well. And sometimes it doesn't release as smoothly as it should. And so each test plan goes through that technical adequacy process and the safety process so that hopefully walking into the plan and the brief for that day, you're witting of the risk and you understand how to best mitigate it. And then you know that the right person has accepted the residual risk that you're living with. And the, uh, yeah, I, I can imagine there's the, the preparation is, is rather lengthy. And I've, I've been told before, and maybe, maybe you told me in a previous conversation, but somebody told me that, you know, we don't do tests when we don't know the answer or expect to have an answer. You know, you don't say, Hey, we're going to do this test and see what happens. You should at least have a theory, uh, to then compare the results to your theory. Yeah, no. And, and the good news, if you do it that way, Vader, then now you can do less testing if you're ultimately able quickly to validate the model that got you there uh, in the start. Now, you often do some of those more difficult cases as you go along in a test plan where maybe you are less sure of the adequacy of the model. And at that point, you can really tell if the model is accurate or not. But no, you should go out the door knowing what to expect but if it always matched the model, then you wouldn't need to fly. And there's always things that you learn. Uh, and hopefully it's not too significant uh, of a negative element of that test that you learn. But sometimes that's the case. Uh, and that's why you do your best to mitigate risk. Yeah. Here, Bender, I've got, I'm going to have one more question. Then you can hop in uh, if you have questions after this. I have a question. Uh, so, I'm going to oh, cut in front right, of Bender. your last question. All right. Yeah, go, good. Bender. Vader, yeah. shut up. Bender, <laughs> yeah. you got it. I do this all the time. Uh, I just like to watch. But uh, my question, so digital, I don't know what they call it, but basically using simulators to do tests now. So that that's more of a recent phenomenon. Is that right? So the, I, I know the F-35 has really, really high fidelity simulators now where they can run a lot of tests that maybe in previous airframes would have had to been run, you know, with the actual yeah, aircraft. And, and so you're right, Bender, that as, as we go – we are entering into the test program with a higher fidelity model. At least that's the theory. And we had some pretty good high fidelity models uh, in F-22 as well. But there's always, almost always, these weird singularities that you find that are unexpected. And I'll just tell you a couple in my experience in the F-22 test program. One of them was on an external tank separation test point. And I think the models and the engineer said something like one in 10 billion chance that only one of these tanks will release and not both. And sure enough, on that particular day, only one released. What uh, I also remember um, one of the supersonic JDAM releases from the Raptor, not the first one, but one that was closer to the transonic regime instead of a little faster. The bomb separated from the jet, but then started to rotate up towards the jet. Uh, completely against what you expect in the model. And so the models are pretty complex. And the models aren't just the aircraft, but the models are the aircraft and the avionics and the airflow and the loads on the aircraft and weapons, if that's the case. And so we are doing our best to be able to develop higher fidelity models so that you can do less 
uh, open air testing or the open air testing you do is focused on some of those more difficult points that you're not sure about with respect to the model. But we still are finding in all of the airframes, F-35 and beyond, that while that theory is good and it's a great pursuit, um, it's more difficult to create a comprehensive model that is accurate than maybe you would think at first glance. Yeah, and that makes sense. And so I assume that now that the F-35 has so much actual flight data, you know, from actual flying, they're able to at least put a lot of that information or that data into the simulations now so that, you know, like current simulator testing is much more higher fidelity than it was maybe at the beginning. And so hopefully that frees up a lot of resources no, and that's, at EG yeah. to be able to do, you know, the advanced timelines or more advanced testing. Yeah, Bender, you're spot on. And you're right about that feedback loop where you take real world data and feed it back into the models or the simulators. So then the next iteration of that model or simulator is even better than the goodness that it had um, going into the test program. That's cool. One last thought. Uh, if you could reach back to Edwards, there's this mock limitation on F-35s dropping right now. It drives me nuts. So if we could like make that a higher test priority to where we can drop supersonic JDM, that would be, that would be ideal. So let me know. There's somebody I could yeah, call. Nope. Bender, fair, fair enough. My, uh, my friend, Matt Heiger replaced me as the wing commander coming up on three years ago. Uh, and I'll let him know your special request. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> there's nothing else going on in the F-35 test program right now. And yeah. your particular need is probably the most important thing going on. And so I'll, I'll let him know that as well. Perfect. Good. Yep. We've, our job is done. Yep. The, uh, one, I assume the, the internal carriage of weapons. So F-22, the F-35, I assume that's like an entirely different problem set as compared to F-16s, you know, F-18s, F-15s, all that. No, and it is. As you open up those big doors and they open up pretty fast, the airflow uh, is is not as um, um, smooth or nominal, I suppose, as it would be if it was flowing across this weapon all of the time. And so it creates some particular challenges with respect to what's going on in the bay when the doors are closed to make sure that that weapon is taken care of. But then as it separates... Uh, in this very fast manner because you don't want those doors open uh, for very long for obvious reasons with respect to signature, then now how do you make sure that you capture what you need to capture with respect to that transition of the doors and the transition of the environment in the bay and then the separation of the weapon as well? Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm glad people smarter than me are working on this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm glad they're testing now, it and, too. And it's really amazing. You don't yeah, want to be I mean, the guy that a, launches the AMRAM really... for the first time from a weapons bay. Like, you don't want that thing cooking off without no, the doors. No, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of considerations that are going on there. And, and uh, again, the, the designers and the engineers or whatever the uh, prime contractor that developed it are, are extremely smart. Uh, but there's also a lot of really smart individuals, those engineers that have been at Edwards and, frankly, have decided to live in the middle of the Mojave Desert because they have such a passion to continuously develop and mold our aerospace arsenal as Americans. Um, they are absolutely amazing and they've seen a lot and we continue to surprise them. And, and as long as we as test pilots do a good job linking what the warfighter needs to what the designers can create and the engineers can test, 
then we're making sure that we're creating a linkage so that all of that test is meaningful because it maps to something that ultimately Bender wants in the F35. Yeah. Well, and, I, and, and how does that, how does that feedback loop happen? Like obviously Bender went straight to the source and, you know, went all the way to the top with this most recent one, but how does DT kind of get that, Hey, we want this order of testing. Like this is the most important answers we need the fastest. Yeah. So, so there's a combination of organizations that help the test organizations do that. Um, there is an ACC typically and global strike has the same in a five, eight, nine, and they have a test priority list that's for operational test. But then the program offices interface with ACC to adjust that test priority list. And they also help the combined test forces out at Edwards or Holloman or Eglin to understand based on the warfighter needs or a contractual requirement, how to rack and stack those tests in the appropriate way. And sometimes they give the CTFs fairly wide latitude in that. And that's where that test management group comes in to optimize the test schedule. But sometimes there's a real world need, whether it's a test acceleration or something else. And then that flows down via the owning organization, ACC in the case we just described, and the program office to figure out how best to manage all of those things that you hope to do in test to get the capability at the right time to the warfighter. How was the, uh, kind of shifting gears a little bit, but how is the transition from the F-15E and then you go to test pilot school and then now you're flying the F-22? Uh, I mean, obviously similar-ish, but then obviously very different in some ways. What was that experience like? So the transition for me between that was a year at test pilot school where during that year I flew 27 different types of aircraft. And so to some extent, as I walked out the door of TPS, then I had been somewhat sanitized from all of the things I'd been accustomed to in the Strike Eagle. And so to me, it wasn't at that point all of that different to me. But then after a couple of F-22 assignments, when I was an operational test group commander, I flew the Strike Eagle again. And to me, it was awesome to have left the Strike Eagle in 2002 and Suite 3 and to jump into testing in the Strike Eagle in 2012 with Suite 8 and Asa Radar and a bunch of other things that we had dreamed about back in the day. That was a bit more of a, a shock to the system for me. And then I went back to Raptors and then I went 5th gen to Hueys to 5th gen. So that was maybe more of, when I was the commander at Andrews, I flew 1969 Marine Corps retread Hueys. And so from 5th gen to 0 gen to 5th gen, that was a bit more of a shock to the system for me. I bet. I can I can only imagine. I, I see those uh, the helicopters hover and I'm like, I don't think I'm capable of making that thing do that. How was that? I, I was I was really marginal at my uh, helicopter <laughs> time. And, you know, up and away, it's pretty easy. And taking off is not too difficult. But it's the transition to hover and then the landing that just kicked my butt. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, 
visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah. No, I can, I can imagine. I was, uh, so I'm doing the TX up here in, uh, in Klamath Falls and uh, just about done now. But the... Uh, but I was sitting there in the end of runway, getting ready to take off, just got armed up. I'm holding the brakes because the C-Model doesn't have a parking brake, which is, you know, that's uh, neither here nor there. You can and add I'm it to the this. test schedule. I'm just saying. That's true. We can. All right. Put it on the list. The uh, And I look over, and there's a civilian FB, like an uh, airport, uh, and there's a guy practicing hovering. And it, it looks dangerous and i'm just sitting there like casually hanging out in my jet staring over and watching this helicopter like hover just inches off the ground like start to wobble and they just set back down and i was like that it's just aggressive like not for me it is an yeah. unnatural act and and i remember <laughs> several months in i thought i had nailed it and i went out to a field and i was practicing but it was the perfect conditions on the perfect day and then the next day I went out to one of our LZs up in the mountains and it was gusty and uncontrollable with respect to the wind. And I was back to being a clown again. <laughs> the, uh, so we, uh, we've gotten some feedback and I want to, I want to go the other way on this. So we've gotten some feedback that sometimes get a little too salty on the Kodiak Shack podcast. So I want to get your perspective, having had a uh, successful 28 year career, obviously with some uh, aggressive highs, you know, dropping bomb, the first bomb off of an F-22, probably some aggressive lows either, you know, at some point in your career, what would you say was kept you motivated and kept you inspired to keep working in the military uh, for those that are maybe young, maybe slightly jaded uh, military members that are listening? Yeah. So let me start with the idea that less than 1% of our population serves in the military. And so a big thank you to anybody that does, because there's a lot of talk. There was a decade ago about the 99% and the 1%, but the real 1% that is impressive are those that have committed to some extent their lives and their careers to serve and support and defend the constitution. And so first of all, if you have done so for four years or 24 years, thank you. Uh, and um, it is a noble calling. And I always told people that I would stay in as long as I thought that I was making a difference, that I was doing something that mattered, that I was challenged, and that I like, respected, appreciated, and admired the people that I worked with and worked for. And essentially, for those 28 years, I was able to say yes to all of those things. Now, family gets a vote, and maybe a greater calling gets a vote. And so uh, I am walking out the door, not because I'm running away from anything, but because I'm running towards something. And I think there's something with a greater level of impact that I can make on people in our country out than in based on where I am and what I have a sense I'm supposed to do with my life. But I wouldn't trade it for the world those 28 years. And if you do four, or you do 24, or you do 28. Thanks for what you have done for our country. And consider that formula about challenge impact, uh, doing something that matters and working with people that are pretty unique, uh, and pretty awesome 
as formulas for what you consider uh, with respect to whether you stay in or whether you get out. I think uh, I had in, in the challenge uh, topic, I, I was at a, a Holloman and they had a flight commanders course, you know, so you're going to be a flight commander. So you got to go to a course. And one of the squadron commanders, they were, they were all talking about how to increase uh, kind of resiliency and get people motivated and stuff. And it's, it's me, I'm the only fighter pilot in the room and uh, a bunch of people from around the base. Cause it's like all the flight commanders course and uh, the maintenance squadron commander points at me and he's like, do you think he has any like resiliency issues? Like, do you think he struggles to know what his objective is? And he's like, days off of work are not what people need. Like people need like a, a focused goal, like something that they're working towards and something that challenges them. And I think, you know, obviously you said it very well that that that's what people should understand is important, you know, whether in or out of the military. Yeah, I think there's something uh, innate about humanity uh, where people want to be cared for and people want to be part of something greater than themselves. And good leaders then will nurture both of those areas and they will find the way to genuinely care for their airmen and their families. And they will help connect the dots for their airmen between what they are doing day to day in their task and the greater, more important things that that task is enabling us to do with respect to support and defend the Constitution. And it's the role of a leader to make sure you're connecting all of those dots and you're performing those. And it's extremely important for every uh, level in the chain of command to do so. But there's something special about being in the military because of the opportunity to work around people that uh, have that common purpose and then to have a common purpose yourself of something that that's important. And those are our competitive advantages. We're never going to outpay someone on the outside. Quality of life sometimes is a struggle based on the nature of our mission. But if we have leaders that seize those competitive advantages of truly caring and helping our airmen become the best possible version themselves and keeping on the forefront of their mind the importance of what we're doing day in and day out, then that will keep people in. Uh, because they are fulfilling those innate needs of humanity. Let's uh, let's shift gears to another motivator, which is uh, adversaries. So obviously you're uh, you are uh, knowledgeable. You spend a lot of time. So kind of go explain uh, kind of how much time you spent, what jobs you've done, thinking about are at the U.S.'s adversaries and and your perspective on them. And then Bender is going to have a lot of questions for you. No, that's awesome, Vader. So I I went to ACSC. And I went to SAS, so I got to think about some deeper thoughts during that two-year chunk. And then I went to ICAF and wrote a lot about strategic competition or what it was called back in the day. And then in my last two jobs, I spent 14 months as the senior defense official and defense attache over in Baghdad. And while most of my focus, of course, was there in the Middle East, uh, because I was deployed, I had the chance to maybe think some deeper thoughts about strategy and what we were doing as a nation and the trade-offs we were making. And then I spent the last year or so uh, as the deputy for Air Force and Space Force International Affairs. And so there was a lot of opportunity to really consider not just our goals and not just our adversaries or strategic competitors, but then what we have uniquely able to do as a nation in order to fulfill our requirements or meet our objectives 
with an understanding maybe of what the threat is and what they're trying to do. And then would you say, well, Bender, you got anything already? No, yeah, we'll we'll get specifics here in a second. Yeah. So what would you say is... Well, let's uh, go, Bender. What do you got? Yeah. (laughs) Well, so were you in, you were in Iraq then when, uh, during the Afghanistan pullout? Is that the, about the time? I was not. Um, nope. So I showed up there in May of 2020 and left in okay. July of 2021. Okay. Gotcha. So we were starting to pull out towards the end of my tenure there, uh, but uh, I was not there during the pullout. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was going to ask like, what did that, you know, like, what was that like? Cause it affected all of CENTCOM, uh, obviously. And yeah. The preparation yeah. And well. so my, yeah. So, so, they, you know, I was I was on a call with General McKenzie at the time, the CENTCOM commander, three or four times a week. And very quickly, the mobility plan rose to the top of his priority order during that time. Uh, and um, as, as you think about that decision, obviously, there's a lot of emotions that are at play. The thing that really struck me was that we had about the same number of people in Iraq, uh, Americans, about 2,500 as they did at the time of Afghanistan. And from a point of comparison, when I was the commander at Joint Base Andrews, we had 17,000 people come to work there every day. And so about a seventh of the number of people in a given base in America, we had keeping the status quo in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And it made me really think about whether it made sense to withdraw those 2,500 when it was a tiny portion of our force and it was a situation where people weren't getting hurt and people weren't dying. And as a superpower, as a global power, then 2,500 people seemed like a small price to pay to keep the status quo uh, instead of the results that we saw in August and September of 2021. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, With... Vader and I, in fact, that's that was our first appointment. Was to we were in Jordan in 2014 when the kind of the ISIS fight kicked off. So we spent a lot of time over Iraq. In fact, our first night over Iraq was, you know, was embassy protection. We were completely lost and couldn't figure out how the night came. Anyway, so it's really interesting to hear or to think about how how much effort has been put into that area. Uh, it's cool that you know 2,500 people in Iraq are able to maintain you know, that status quo, because the threat was, it was big in 2014, right? I mean, they had rolled most of the country up uh, at that point. So it's interesting. How would you say Iraq is now? Is it, is it pretty, pretty stable? Is it, is there a threat of things kind of degrading again in the near future? Yeah. So, so when you were there, you guys did amazing work pushing back the threat of ISIS. It continues to be a threat to humanity uh, and they are defeated but not destroyed, which means that they still certainly do create some problems in Iraq and then more so problems in Syria. Uh, But the real problem in my mind with Iraq now is sovereignty concerns because of the dominance or influence of Iranian-aligned militia groups that are extra governmental and that create problems for Iraq maintaining its sovereignty. I always told my team to some extent that our goal was Iraq first when we were there, not because 
it's all about Iraq, though for the Iraqis it certainly is. But it is to the benefit of the United States for them to be a strong, stable, sovereign, democratic uh, partner to the United States. And the influences of these Iranian-aligned militia groups that create problems for the Iraqi government and the Iraqi people is the element that is more of a threat in Iraq today than the residual ISIS um, that tends to be in very small pockets and very sporadic. But the dominance at times of these militia groups creates real problems for the stability and the security of uh, modern-day Iraq. When you're, when you're there in that, in that position, obviously when Bender and I went, and I went back in, uh, for a second time a few years later, you know, we're at the, we're at the tactical level. You know, we're talking to JTACs, we're, we're worried about, you know, night taking or dropping bombs and that. So then we get to the, I always mix up the order because I've never done the stuff, but uh, was it uh, operational and the strategic level? So once we start getting that higher level, you in that position at that, at that level, what is your perspective? Obviously, dropping bombs is sometimes part of the job, but I guarantee there's, there's so much more kind of chess instead of checkers going on. Yeah, so I got to learn from an amazing ambassador. I was his military lead there in the embassy, and Matt Tuller, who has since left, had been an ambassador in Kuwait. He had been an ambassador in Yemen. He grew up as a, a, a foreign officer's kid in the Middle East, and so he knew his business and he knew that area. And to me, it was heartening to see the interagency work. In D.C., it doesn't always work. And I've been only twice in the Pentagon. But um, you certainly notice as you engage with that whole of government that it doesn't always work well. But that small country team of an ambassador that includes the components of all of those other elements of whole of government work very well. And so you are following the lead or helping contribute to the strategy of the ambassador in totality using all of those elements of power. And certainly the military is an important element of power, but there's also others. And it was interesting to see the nuance with which a very skilled ambassador would engage with the Iraqi leadership and create strategy that made sense for the United States and it may not make sense for CENTCOM, though often it did, but it made sense for our national need based on him being the president's primary representative in the country. And it made sense based on that. And it was interesting to see whether it was diplomatic or economic or intelligence or military or legal or other elements of power being integrated in his integrated country strategy and then helping form that strategy, and then helping implement it by my role there in the embassy. I assume, I assume while you are deployed, obviously you have a uh, a very focused interest on what's happening in Iraq, and you know, and as you get closer to the 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 mission, people start having a bigger uh, or a, a more focused perspective on it. Would you say? Um, at Andrews or at the Pentagon, do you think they, they are able to keep that perspective and that, and that ability to focus on the things that they need to be focused on? Or do you feel like sometimes that stuff kind of gets lost? Yeah, so I would say at Andrews, no, it wasn't getting lost because there was a very particular mission to do there and airmen and sailors and others were there doing that mission. 
The challenge is when you get into the Pentagon, and it's not too far away from Andrews, but it seems like a world of difference. Because now there are a lot of bureaucratic constraints, and separation from the mission creates, a, at times, loss of focus about what really matters to those guys and gals that are trying to implement what comes out of the Pentagon. And so the challenge for anybody that works in the building, and certainly the higher you go, is to snap back often enough, probably by getting out to see where the warfighter is and what they do, with respect to what really matters. Not the bureaucratic fights, and not uh, this turf war or that turf war, or not this political posturing, but what do the airmen and their families really need? And just based on the insulation of being in the Pentagon, it's difficult at times to remember that there are real airmen out there that are doing the J-O-B that need the Pentagon to perform their important role of casting vision, creating wide boundaries, providing resources, breaking down barriers, and then frankly, getting out of the way. I like the, the uh, that, wide It's boundaries. easier said than done, but yeah. that's how ideally it should work. But yeah, and I think that's, I, I, I really enjoy it when things are explained in like the, the most simplest terms. Cause that's why we try to do when we're flying jets or anything like let's, let's synthesize this and you know, like wide boundaries. Like we don't, we don't have to have close hold all the time. Like we just need to say like, this is within the realm and figure out the best way to do it. Yeah, um, give, give us a commander's intent and then let us go. Yeah, gosh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. The, uh, so now that's reductionist. There's a lot of constraints because the chief of staff of the Air Force has a boss and he has a boss and he has a boss. And so it isn't just a military problem, but it is a multidimensional problem that you've got to understand priorities and resources and allocation within the whole of government. Uh, but at times, it is easy in the Pentagon to forget that the best thing that you can do is that vision, those boundaries, the resources, the breaking down barriers and getting out of the way uh, for the airmen and ultimately for the mission uh, based on those threats that are real and that are out there. When, uh, when we think about, when we talk about threats, uh, so China... How would you say, is China as existential of a threat? Is that a thing? As aggressive or as severe of a threat as people make it seem to be, in your perspective? Yeah, so I think absolutely yes. Uh, as we talk about strategic competition or we talk about the pacing challenge, which seems like a little too soft of a phrase for what really is going on, uh, Russia to some extent and China to a large extent have the capability and likely the interest in disrupting this amazing international order, free, open, prosperous, and secure, that we essentially established via Bretton Woods and at the end of World War II. And even during some of the darkest days of the Cold War, while the Soviet Union was a threat, they did not have the whole of nation capability to disrupt that international order that China does now. And so it is... a uh, a um, um, challenge for our age to consider that a whole of nation threat requires a whole of nation response or even beyond whole of nation, but alongside of our unique American advantage, which is our allies and partners, 
in order to ultimately deter so that we don't have to face something that would be extremely harmful for them and for us and for the international world order if deterrence failed. Uh, Bender, what do you think? Yeah, I was going to ask you what, so as a geostrategist like you are, you know, we train in terms of like the fight happening. So every day we go fly, you know, we train for that fight, but we don't want that fight. Like you said, China doesn't want that fight. So when we're thinking big pieces, you know, I, I, what are the, what are the big pieces? I guess I know that like the semiconductors and, and microchips being made in Taiwan is a huge piece of this, you know, conflict. Obviously there's broader things that they, that they're interested in, but how do we, how do we develop a strategy when we have a government that changes every four years, really every two years, you know, how do we stick to that? Like what, what do you give us some hopeful uh, insight on that? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to use the phrase that is used in the national defense strategy, which is integrated deterrence and integrated deterrence is old school cold war winning deterrence with a little bit more nuance, obviously, with the um, phrase integrated ahead of it. And what integrated means is that we've got to do this thing as a whole of nation and a whole of government alongside of allies and partners. And what deterrence uh, does is that it plays into the mind of an adversary. Ultimately, deterrence is about your capability and your will and how an adversary understands or perceives that and then makes the calculus based on benefits and costs and risks to them. And so our job, of course, is to be extremely capable, but capable means a lot of different things, and military is a huge component to that. But it also means that we've got to target what we do and what we say very specifically into the mind of Xi Jinping and the Communist Party in China in order to make them believe that it is not worth starting a conflict because the risks and the costs are too high and the benefits are too low. And so when you're thinking about grand strategy, you think about what we are doing to play into the mind of that strategic competitor and help them to firmly believe that it is not worth it for them to do something that we do not want them to do. Well, I think there's, what would you say? Because I, th I think we have a, a beautiful problem because America is free and because we have the ability to kind of do what we want as a country, we, we have the problem of companies can buy things open source, you know, that are, that are probably not in America's best interest to have on our networks and all those kind of things. So, so how would you say like, obviously it's a benefit, it's a net good, but how would you say we, we handle the problem that we're, we're almost asymmetric in the way this pre-battle, if you want to call it that, which hopefully is not pre-anything, but how, how would you say that plays out or how we handle that? Yeah, so two thoughts on that, Vader. Number one, I think China has been sufficiently heavy-handed in the last couple of years that our nation and companies in particular are understanding the risks associated with entanglement and engagement. And I think some of those companies are starting to realize that this is more existential or the threat of our age than maybe they gave it credit for when they were enjoying massive profits without an understanding of risk. And now risk is starting to raise its head and risk is financial and security and safety and moral risk. And I think companies are more 
nuanced in their understanding of that, in part because Russia demonstrated that there are, there are real malign actors in the world, and in part because China has been heavy-handed, and that heavy-handedness has demonstrated that there is a real risk or a real threat there. So that's part of the answer, Vader, to the question. And the second part is that we do have this unique advantage of a large trusting network of allies and partners. I came from SAF-IA, Air Force International Affairs, and I got to see every single day our engagement with a variety of allies and partners. And it, the national security, security strategy says that they're a unique American advantage. And the national defense strategy says they're the core of our strategy or the center of gravity of our strategy or the anchor of our strategy. But what that means is that those adversaries would love to have what we have, but they don't. And while they may have this rough transactional alignment with one another occasionally, they don't have a proof that there is a trust in that relationship. And I saw it very immediately uh, after February 24th when I went to a, a NATO summit for all air forces. And I got to see not just the capability that had already been employed protecting NATO's eastern flank, but I also got to see the tight, close relationships amongst all of those air chiefs that didn't just start on the 24th of February, but had been nurtured for the last decades. And now we could operate together successfully as a result of some common equipment, but a shared understanding of the threat and relationships that had carefully been crafted over time. Now, NATO is a special case of that, but we have other cases in the Indo-Pacific that China certainly has to consider in that cost-benefit risk calculus before they do something that we would not want them to do. And so that is truly a unique American advantage, and we need to play towards how we utilize talking to those companies, the risk that is real out there in engagement or entanglement with China, with all of the benefits we get from allies and partners, and engage in this integrated deterrence uh, challenge alongside of them. And as the Chief Staff of the Air Force says, integrated by design. And so the best that we can do is not just considering those relationships as an afterthought, but as a forethought in the creation of our strategy. And if we do so, then we create a lot of problems for the Communist Chinese Party to consider. Nice. And I think Bender and I were, uh, we talked about it once before on podcasts, I think, but we were on the, we were the boots on the ground, if you will, on the hearts and minds. We went to uh, Malaysia uh, for, you know, pretty much that, you know, State Department was like, hey, go out there, make some friends, you know, because, because, you know, more friends you got in the, uh, in that area probably doesn't hurt. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about security cooperation, uh, we quickly jump to equipment, but like you experienced it is engagements and exercises and education and training and intel sharing uh, and command and control networks in addition to just the equipping that enable you to tie together into these trusting relationships. And you probably still remember those airmen that you spent time with in Malaysia and they guaranteed remember you. And when you're an air chief at some point, Vader or Bender, and those individuals in Malaysia grow up to be air chiefs, then now you have the shared experience and a common bond that will serve us well to continue along in integrated deterrence. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. 
the uh, so the you know you're taking all of these experiences and we're 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 uh, we're running out of time, but you're taking all these experiences and now you've got you're doing capital leadership. Is that right? Yeah. So I started a small business, Vader. It's called Capital Leadership LLC. It's really just an umbrella for some miscellaneous work that I'm doing. I'm doing some consulting. I'm on a corporate board. I'm doing some speaking. I might start writing an innovation leadership book here shortly. I'm doing some pro bono leadership development for staffers on the Hill. And all of that falls under this umbrella. But really, that umbrella is just a chance, I think, for me to develop some things as a part of my portfolio to really tackle the big thing that I'm supposed to do with my life to maximize impact. Yeah, well, that's a, a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Julian from uh, Crowdbotics. I think you uh, and and he and I were talking about uh, the differences in perspective you can get. You know, obviously, a lot of innovation companies, a lot of companies in general, want end user feedback about products, but then having a person like yourself with such a broader experience and exposure and understanding of of the bigger picture provides an entirely different perspective and and useful uh, experience for the companies who have maybe minimal to no military experience who are trying to work with the military. Yeah, no, and, and I do know Julian, and I know he's a friend of the show, and, and I've enjoyed talking to him and what he and his team have done for components of the Air Force. But you're right. When you step out the door, uh, if you think about it, you have a perspective that there are a lot of people that are interested in and a lot of people could use. Uh, to me, I love the idea of whole of government national security strategy and policy. And I think this next big thing is going to be related to that for me. But there's a lot of different experiences that we all have along the way that we can use to contribute positively to people or communities or to companies or to our country. And I'm excited in my case to see how that plays out. And I have no doubt that after you guys become chiefs of staff, you'll go on and do something great too. Yeah, hopefully. Bender, what what do you got? Uh, parting shots. Nah, that was an awesome conversation. So hopefully we didn't, I didn't derail that too much, but we appreciate you coming out to spend time with us. No, you guys are awesome. I listen a lot. I would love maybe uh, four or five months down the road when I really have uh, a chance to share what I think I'm going to do with my life in the future to maybe circle back and talk more about that with y'all. We'd love to have you. Yeah. Open invitation whenever you're ready. The, uh, well, no, thank keep you. killing it guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, we'll do. And, uh, thank you again, dragon. We do appreciate it, sir. And, uh, remember everybody, uh, his LinkedIn account will be in the show notes. So if you want to reach out, you can find him on LinkedIn and, uh, just let him know you appreciated, uh, his, uh, inputs. And then remember for us, uh, like subscribe, share, do all the stuff that I talk about a lot. Like, uh, if you listen to the afterburn podcast, just do what he says too, because uh, he's better at this than me. Uh, but everybody, uh, thanks again. And, uh, dragon, thank you. You got it. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.